0: John chapter 20 is where we're going to start this morning. We're really going to start with verse 30, or what is the purpose clause of John's gospel, as John has written a gospel here that spans 21 chapters. In chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he lays down his purpose for writing this gospel, for recording what he has recorded. So we're going to begin by looking at that text and just reading verse 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as your spirit has superintended at the hand of the Apostle John, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. That we would recognize your son for who he is, the one who reveals you, our father, and who saves us. That we would rejoice in him and in rejoicing and trusting in him, so I have life in his name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a Christian? It sounds like a simple enough question, but I want to ask it. What is a Christian? Because how we answer that question defines what we believe about what we call Christianity. And so what would you say to answer that question? And I would guess that you would say something like a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus Christ, someone who follows Jesus. That's probably how most of us would define a Christian. And and that's good. You should say that. But that leads us to other questions, doesn't it? Like, who is this Jesus that we're to believe in? Will any old Jesus do And my contention is and has been that the only Jesus who defines Christianity is the Jesus who is rightly understood as the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. He's the only one who's saving because he's the only one who is. There is no other Jesus. But why do I need to believe in Jesus? I mean, Why, why do I need him? And that's why I said look at John chapter 20 and verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. If you'll note, if you go through the Gospel of John, you'll find that John only records seven of Jesus' miracles, or seven signs. They're all called signs because they're pointing to something. They're telling you something about him. It's not that Jesus just went around and wanted to show off his ability to do miracles. Jesus was actually doing miracles to teach something about himself. And so John refers to them as signs. They're pointing to some truth about him. John only records seven, and he says, there are many other signs that he did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book or the Gospel of John. You can read about several of them in Matthew or Mark or Luke, but they're not written here. But these are written, these signs, verse 31, are written so that you may believe something about Jesus. What? That Jesus, now notice two things there, Two truths about Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. First one, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the servant of the Lord promised in Isaiah, who comes to save us. You must believe that about him. Second, he says, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is divine. He is the eternal Son of the Father, sent by the Father to save us. And why does John want you to know that? Look at the last clause. And that by believing, so here's the purpose, that by believing, you may have life in his name. That by believing, you may have life in his name. Did you catch that? Life is only found in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what kind of life is he talking about? Well, eternal life. Look, look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life. Here's the definition. You hear that? This is eternal life. I want eternal life. I don't have it. I want to know what it is. What is it? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Is eternal life, that's the life that you only have in the name of Jesus. But I want you to understand something about eternal life because I think when we think of eternal lives, our minds automatically go to temporality. In other words, we start thinking about eternal life as life for, a, for an eternal period of time or infinite period of time, as in the amount of time you'll live. But eternal life is not speaking here about temporality. I'm not saying you won't live forever. Please don't misunderstand me. But he's not talking about the amount of time you'll live when he says this is eternal life or so you'll have life in his name. For Jesus already told us that all people live eternally in the sense that all people live forever. Look at John chapter five. John chapter five. Go back there in verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming... When all who were in the tombs will hear his voice. How many of whom are in the tombs? All will hear his voice. Now listen, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, everyone will be resurrected and continue on for eternity. Everyone will. But there are two distinct qualities of that eternal state. There is that which rightly can be called life, and that which rightly can only be called judgment or death. So here's what John is getting at, or Jesus is getting at. All have sinned, all are under judgment, all are spiritually stillborn. We've been separated from God. He is opposed to us. We are rightly called as enemies. And as unbelievers, we will live forever, if we're unbelievers, we will live forever in hell under his curse, which the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, calls the second death. But the second death is eternal. So, what is eternal life then? Eternal life is not eternity under the curse in hell, eternal life is eternal blessedness in the presence of the Lord. Eternal life is found in being in communion or fellowship with the Father and the Son. So when we differentiate the fact that in Jesus' name is eternal life, we need to be clear what we mean by eternal life. We, don't, we aren't just talking about an infinite period of time in which you will be resurrected to live, because everyone will be resurrected to live for an infinite period of time. We're talking about differentiating between what kind of living that will be. Will that be living under judgment in the second death? Or will that be living in eternal blessedness in the presence of the Lord, in communion with God? Eternal life is found in being in fellowship with, knowing you, the only true God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent, the Son. This is why Jesus can say this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son, whom you sent. You see, knowing the triune Lord, I want you to hear this, knowing the triune Lord is eternal life. When does eternal life begin? The moment you know the triune Lord. You are now in communion with him. And knowing the triune Lord is more than just an intellectual commitment. This isn't knowing like I know about and have some kind of intellectual assent. This is knowing in that I know him like Adam knew his wife. This is speaking of intimacy. We're in communion with one another. We have fellowship with one another. We have a relational bond, actually a covenantally relational bond, covenantal relational bond. And that's what I've been driving at this whole series in the Trinity. Christianity is Trinitarianism. And the Christian life consists in trusting in, delighting in, resting in, communing with our triune Lord. That's why, as Russell read to the, from the Athanasian Creed today, that's why the Athanasian Creed started this way. That's been confessed by the church for 15 centuries. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. That Catholic faith just means universal faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith. Here it is, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. So the last several weeks as I have been walking through what the various New Testament authors say about our triune Lord I've been trying to help justify what the church has been confessing for centuries because I believe it is biblical and right. We have one God in being, three in person. Three in one, one in three. How do I explain that mystery? I say we have one God in being, three in person. Do I have anything else to say about that? Well, they're equal in power and glory. Why? Because they're one in being. And they have personal relations. Why? Because they're three persons. Anything else? Well, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anything else? Well, the Father, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is spirated by the Father and Son, or breathed out by the Father and Son. Okay, anything else? That's about it. I mean, in other words, I haven't really told you much. Some of that language might be new to you. But the mystery of the Trinity confounds us, does it not? Because he's incomprehensible. And and probably the New Testament author speaks most about the Trinity is John. Maybe an argument could be made for Paul, but I think John may speak the most. He, John is at pains to tell you the true nature of Jesus. And John's portrait of Jesus and the Christian life in Christ can't even be fathomed apart from the Trinity. So what I want to do with John that's different than what I did with Matthew or Mark or Luke and Acts which are both written by Luke, what I want to do with John is I actually want to spend three weeks on John. I spend three weeks on John because of the Gospel of John, we have the Epistles of John, and we have the Book of Revelation, all written by John. But I want to speak three weeks on what the Apostle John has said about our triune Lord, and as we do, I want to spend time on each of the three persons in God. This morning, I want to focus specifically on what John teaches us about the Father, About the Father, what he teaches us about the Father. Next week, about the Son, and the week after that, about the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll barely scratch the surface. Please understand this. We will barely scratch the surface this morning of what John says about the Father. You know, John's gospel has 120 direct references to the Father. Just in John's gospel, 120 direct references to the Father. That doesn't even include the indirect references to the Father. Like when the Son is speaking, guess what he has? A father, that's indirect, you follow? Now we'll barely scratch the surface. So here's what I want to do today. As, as briefly as I can, I want to take the sermon in three parts. Here's the first part is this. We're going to begin to be, build the case that John believes in the triune Lord, that he confesses, that he teaches, he reveals to us in Scripture the triune Lord. That's the first thing I'm going to, point I'm going to make. Second, we're going to look at the person of the Father specifically. And third, we're going to consider how do we fellowship with the Father? How do we fellowship with Him? Okay, so, so let's look first at the triune nature of God in John. Let's look at our triune God in John. Now, I want to remind you again, and I'm going to just drive this every week, that I've been arguing that we define the Trinity this way we have one God, in other words, one being or substance, in three distinct persons who are equal in power and glory. And over the next three weeks, I want to establish that John believes God is one, yet John also believes and teaches three distinct persons in one God, equal in power and glory. So to begin our case, I want to look at John chapter 1 and verse 1. Turn there to John chapter 1 and verse 1. I'll just read the first two verses first. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. This forms a kind of neat parallel here in John's prologue. If you understand, John has a prologue to this gospel that goes from verse 1 to verse 18 of chapter 1. And in the prologue, John is defining for you what he wants you to understand about Jesus so that as you read the rest of his gospel, you are grounding it in this prologue. This prologue is sort of giving you a summary of who he is. And what's John's driving intention? That you know who Jesus is, so you might have life. And so he begins the prologue with telling us who Jesus is. And these first two verses kind of gives us these parallels. Notice the beginning of the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Now notice the second verse. He was in the beginning with God. It's repetitive. And the Word was God. So let me break this down a bit. In the beginning was the Word. Now you may have picked up right off of this Language echoes Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. And then God spoke, God said, His Word went forth, let there be light, and light was In the beginning was the Word. In other words, there is this eternal person called the Word who is before creation. He is eternal. And the Word, notice what it says, was with God. So there's a closeness. He's with God, the Word is. Yet there's a distinction made between these two persons, God and the Word. Now notice what he says in the next phrase. And the Word was God. Now, you might stop and go, what is it, John? Was the word with God, or was the word God? Yes. Yes. And incidentally, these, this word God, theos in the Greek, is used in two different ways. In that phrase, and the word was with God, the word God there is used like a personal name. The word is with God. That's who he's with. When you get to the next phrase, and the word was God, now the word God is is used as a predicate. You guys know what a predicate is? Okay, a predicate, if you have a subject, the predicate is telling you something about the subject. It's describing the subject to you. So I can say, uh, Russell Horner, uh, Bible teacher at BCHS. Okay, I just told you something about Russell Horner. Russell Horner's a Bible teacher at BCHS. So I just predicated something about him. This is what's happening here. The word was God. Something's being predicated about the word. A quality is being told to you about the word. He's God. He's God. Now, I, I want to be careful here because some of you will come up to me and say, but don't the Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation say, well, what it should be is, and the word was a God. Isn't that how they translate it? Yes, that is how they translate it. Is that correct? No. It's not correct. Um, now, I could explain to you why. It's because of Colwell's rule in Greek grammar. And, and then I could tell you what Colwell's rule is, and you would say, that's Greek to me. <laughs> and I would tell you it's also Greek to the Jehovah's Witnesses, clearly, based on how they translated their text. Okay? The Word was God. God. He was in the beginning, now notice what John comes back to, he was in the beginning with God. Again, the word who is God is differentiated from God who was with him in eternity. Wow, that's a lot to say in two verses. Now look what he says in verse three. All things were made through him. That's the word, all things are made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the word is the creator. Nothing was made that was not made through him. So this eternal word who is God and who is with the eternal God is also the one through whom everything was made. Now we're going to return to this text when I do a sermon on the Trinity and creation. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but, but here's what I want you to know for now. I just want you to remember that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Lord God who is one. Hero Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one. That Lord God is the Lord and the creator of heaven and earth. He is God, Isaiah tells us, and there is no other. And yet this eternal word being spoken of here as God who is also with God is now called the creator of all things. He is God and he is with God and everything is created through him. Now now look at John one and verse four. "In him was life, that's in the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. See he is the one who gives life to all things, because he is life in himself. Jesus will come to tell us that later in John five, we won't look at it today, but probably next week, that he has life in himself. He is life. Life was in eternity past and is through eternity future in him. He is the one who spoke life into the old creation. He said light be and it was. And he is the one who speaks eternal life into the new creation. And the life was the light of men. In other words, this word not only is life, but this word reveals the truth. He is the light. light like, Think about it like light beams Radiating from the sun, our stars. So this word radiates forth, showing forth the glory of God. Now look at verse six through eight. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. In other words, we get an aside here in the prologue about John the Baptist to distinguish John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets, from Jesus, the one who is the light. John the Baptist, like all of God's emissaries throughout Scripture, John the Baptist, like every prophet throughout Scripture, was always testifying to the light, was always pointing to the light, but was never the light. Now look at John 1 verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking of the Jews or Israel, and his own people did not receive him. See, the light came in the person of Jesus Christ. But the world rejected him. His own people didn't receive him. But look at verse 12, this contrast. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, if you do receive Jesus, if you do believe in his name, you're born again. You're adopted as a child of God. In other words, you now have life. You were brought back from spiritual death. You were brought back from separation from the father, and you're now adopted as children of the father. John has just brought us into the relational category of adoption. And here is where the prologue of John moves us further into the personal relations in God by naming two of those personal relations. Up till now, we have the word, the life, the light, and God. But we don't have them named yet. Specifically, as to their personal relations, and so now he, as he comes to this category of adoption, that we're adopted as children of God, he launches into telling us about the personal relations. And the word was fourteen, and the word became flesh. In other words, this word, who was eternally God and eternally with God, through whom all things created, this word took on humanity. We call it the incarnation. He was incarnate, enfleshed. He took humanity to himself. That's what he did. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word literally tabernacled. The presence of God was in the tabernacle. And now the presence of God is tabernacling in the word. And we have seen his glory. Glory, now notice what it says, as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Did you catch that? He became a man and was God with us, Emmanuel. And he is then told to us to be the only son from the Father. He is full of grace and truth Truth, as he comes from the Father, who is also full of grace and truth. Now look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out. That's speaking of John the Baptist. This is, was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, what what he's saying is, this is the guy whom John the Baptist pointed us to. The one who is exceedingly greater than the greatest man to ever be born of women. And he's exceedingly greater. Why? Because the son was before John. He was eternally with the Father. He is God. He doesn't just bear witness to the light. He is the light. He doesn't just tell you how to get life. He is life. One of the reasons I hate that song, you know, um, he came from heaven to earth to show the way. No, he didn't come to show the way. He came to be the way. He doesn't point to the light. He is it. He doesn't point to life. He is life. Now look at verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace. Because he is God, his fullness brings us immeasurable grace, grace upon grace, superabundant grace, grace greater than all my sin. His grace pours forth from the infinite storehouse of his divine being. How can it fail to cover my sin? It is in Christ, in Christ that we see all that God is for us. Now, we have never seen these heights of grace before. Nowhere in Scripture have we seen these heights of grace before. Nowhere. Now we have received the revelation from God that we didn't receive before. We received revelation from God, but not to this height. We didn't receive the one of whom the angels break out in praise and song at his birth, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. But now we see him. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. In other words, Moses was pointing forward through the law to Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This isn't contrasting the law saying that it's not true or there's not grace in the law. The point here is that revelation has escalated. We have revelation about the Son, grace and truth, in the law. But now he's really come. The fullness of revelation is here in him. And look what it says verse 18. No one has ever seen God. See, no one has ever seen him. How many people have seen God? None. No one, universal negative. You catch that? No one has ever seen God. But notice this next phrase, the only God, which by the way, I think is best translated Monogenēs in the Greek. I think is best translated the only begotten God. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side. In other words, on his bosom. It's a bit like um, John, the beloved disciple, who's laying his, chest, uh, his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's at his side. He's in close, intimate, personal relation with him. He's begotten from him. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who's that? The Son. The Son reveals to you the Father. So the Son of the Father is the Word of God who was with the Father for eternity. He is God. He is the only begotten God. He is eternally in the closest relationship with the Father. In fact, He and the Father are one. He makes known the Father. He reveals the Father. And He is the way to the Father. That is why He is called light and life. Light, revelation. Life, union or communion with our triune Lord. That's also why He affects our adoption as children of the Father. What else would the Son affect but our adoption as His brothers and sisters as children of the Father? So we have two distinct co-equal and co-eternal persons in one God. So you might say to me, okay, great, in the first 18 verses of John, you've proven to us binitarianism, right? Two persons in God, but not Trinitarianism. All right, so you're going to have to wait until next week for me to do that. But I will. What I want you to grab a hold of today is that Jesus has come to reveal the Father to you and to bring you adoption as children of the Father so that you might have eternal life. So I want to look at that second point, the person of the Father. Who is he? Who is he? At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you this question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? I I want you to hear how J.I. Packer addressed that question in his book, Knowing God. Here's what Packer said. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. You see, an unbeliever is one who does not have God as father. We are not naturally children of the Father. We are, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, naturally children of wrath, sons of disobedience, or as Jesus said to the unbelievers in John chapter 8, children of your father the devil. It's not complimentary. We are spiritually stillborn as children of the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy, and Jesus has come to give us the right to become children of the Father, That's the ultimate gift of Christianity, is it not? You're restored to right relationship with the Father. You're adopted sons in Christ. I use that language of sons not to say that women aren't included, but to say that women are made heirs as well. You're adopted sons in Christ. This is eternal life to be children of the Father. But who is the Father? Who is he? What's he like? Well, what do we learn from the, about the Father from the Son? Well, there's, there's way more that we learn about Him than I have possibly have time to get to today. We could spend the rest of our lives talking about what we learn about the Father. But I want to emphasize three quick truths we learn from the Father, all oriented around the same idea. Here's the first one. He is eternally Father. Did you hear that? There's not some God substance behind him that one day decided to be father he is father by nature this means he is eternally related to the son he's always had the son at his side on his bosom with him he is <clears throat> he has eternally begotten the son he has eternally been in fellowship with the son the father and the son were together in the beginning before the creation of the world, in eternity past, father and son. It's important that we know that. He doesn't become father and son. God, in fact, doesn't become anything. You follow that? He is pure being and act. He becomes nothing. Right? If he's becoming anything, we should all be really concerned. Because if God is becoming something, what might he become? And will it be good for us? He is. That's his divine name, I am, not I'm becoming, I am. He's eternally father and son, and that leads quickly to my second point, which is why I'm making the first one to drive at the second thing we learned about the father is the father eternally loves the son. You might think, well, why is that important to me? I, I, I want you to understand why it's important to you. The father eternally loves the son, as John's as first John 4 says, God is. Love and the sending of the Son and the Spirit make that clear to us that God is love. Now, I don't mean by love what the world means by love. I don't mean some aesthetic, some feeling. I mean love has actual ethical content. Love is holy. He loves the Son. He sends him. But we must begin with the Father's love for the Son, not the Father's love for us. You follow me? So I'm starting there. Let's start with the Father's love for the Son because it's prior to our creation. Not The Father's love for us is also prior to our creation, but I'm going to start with the Son on purpose. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 35. John chapter 3 and verse 35. The Father loves the Son. Catch that? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Because the Father loves the Son, eternally loves Him, and eternally generates Him, He's eternally giving to Him. That's what His love does. It's self-giving. It's like a self-emptying love. I'm giving to the other. It's not a taking kind of love. You know what that kind of love is like? right? You experience the self-taking kind of love. I want you to do X, Y, and Z to show me you love me, right? In other words, I love you, you love me. Now do these things to show me you love me because my love is constantly taking. But God's love is always giving, and that's really what love is. It's only love of self to take. It's love of God and others to give. God's love gives, eternally He gives to His Son. John chapter 5 and verse 20, John chapter 5 and verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. He's going to go on to talk about how the Son does the Father's works because As a triune God, their works that they do are indivisible. They do all their works together. Though they can be distinguished as persons. The Father loves the Son. John chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 9. There's more, but I'm just going to narrow it down to these. John chapter 15 and verse 9. Listen how Jesus speaks about this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Hear that? The Father's loved me, and he's given himself to me. He's given all things to me. That's what his love does. And in the same way, I have loved you. I'm giving myself to you. John chapter 17 and verse 24. Father, I desire... And here's Jesus praying to his Father, the Son, speaking to the Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, in other words, the people the Father has get, given to the Son, they whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, the Father's loved the Son in eternity. And he's given all things to him out of that love. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. I made known to them your name. And he's speaking about his disciples and the people around. I made known to them your name, he's speaking to the Father, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Understand this. God did not make creatures so that God could know what love is. He wasn't in heaven eternity past singing, I want to know what love is. wasn't doing it. He knew what it was. Right? He did not create creatures so he could know what love is. He did not redeem those creatures because he was needy for their love. God created and redeemed out of the overflow of the eternal love, which has always been between the Father and the Son. That's why his love is always self-giving. It's always been eternity, and he's always been giving. And creation and redemption is the overflow of the love of God that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from eternity. This eternal love between the Father and the Son overflows in the gospel story that is our salvation. Look at John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That's the hour of his death, the cross. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. See, the son's interest is that the father would glorify him, that he might glorify the father. Since you have given him authority, the father has given the son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Father, you've given me these people, and I'm giving them eternal life. Now glorify me so that I might glorify you. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Son has been sent To gather the people that the Father has given him, so that through the Father glorifying the name of the Son in salvation, the Father's name might also be glorified. In other words, we are beneficiaries of the Father and the Son's eternal love for one another. And they want to catch us up in that. That's why the importance of verse 24 of chapter 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. They want us to be caught up in this glory. And notice in verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. They want to catch us up in this eternal communion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Your eternal good, catch this because this matters, this is really everything, I think, in the Christian life. Your eternal good is inextricably bound together with the mutual love and glory between the Father and the Son. Why does that matter? Because that means that your eternal good is as secure as the love the Father and the Son have for one another. And they will not fail to love one another, nor to give their glory to another. And that leads to the third point I want to make. If that's who our Father is, this Father who loves the Son eternally, who's always been Father and who loves us, right? I, that's where I want to go. The Father eternally set His love. That's the third thing I want to say about Him. He eternally set His love On his people and sent his son to redeem us. Now, I think we often imagine Jesus as the one who loves us. Jesus loves us and he comes to sort of buy the Father's love for us. The Father's angry, right? He's all ticked off and Jesus has come because he loves us. He's the really loving one and he's buying off the Father. As if the gospel is that the Father loves you after you've met the condition of believing in Jesus. But understand that the Father loves you and therefore He sent Jesus for you and drew you to Jesus in faith. Look at John 3.16. This is the most famous of all Bible verses. But stop and consider the Father's love for God. There it's speaking of God in a personal term and it's referring to the Father. We know that because of what's going to come with His only Son. For God so loved the world. Now the world, that doesn't mean this world's system and that doesn't mean he loved the oceans and the seas, whatever, okay, that's not, it means he loves all the peoples of the world, every tribe and tongue and nation, not just Israel, not just Jews, but God loves every tribe and tongue and nation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the Father gave the Son because He already loved you. He didn't give the Son to buy His love for you. John chapter 17, go back there, and verse 23. Jesus speaks about the unity, the communion, the fellowship we want to have with the Father and the Son. He makes this statement in verse 23 of John 17 I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me, now catch this last phrase, because I could spend a whole sermon on it, but I'm not, and loved them even as you loved me. Stop and think about that. Jesus can say to the Father that the Father loved you even as he loved his Son, his eternal Son. He wants you to know that. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. The Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 5 5, pours out the love of God into our hearts. That doesn't mean He makes you a lover of God, that means He testifies to your heart that God loves you. The Father loves us. Please hear this. The Father loves you, and His love is prior to your love. He loved you though you were a sinner. His love for you precedes your love for Him. But God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love for you, please keep this in mind, precedes your love for Him. 1 John 4.10, herein is love. We just said God is love in 1 John 4.8. And first John 4 9. Now, herein is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. He did not send Jesus because you loved him. He sent Jesus because he loves you. First John three: one. What does John say? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. So that leads to my third point. This Father is eternally Father revealed by His Son in His Son whom He eternally loves and He sent Him to reveal Himself to us and give us life in Him because He eternally loves us too, right? So how do, we, how do we fellowship with the Father in love? How do we do that? How do we fellowship with this Father who loves us? Paul, Paul seems to understand that we need to. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, he breaks out and prays, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he blessing? Blessing. The God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as sons to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the beloved. Paul just wants to break out in worship of the Father and His great love for us and His great blessings to us in Christ. Paul also says in Ephesians 2.18 that we have fellowship with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. That's what he says. For through Him, Christ, we both, that being Jews and Gentiles in the context, have access in one Spirit to the Father. So how do we have access to the Father? How do we have fellowship with the Father? In Christ, by the Spirit. In other words, we look to Jesus, the Son, in faith, and the Spirit unites us to Christ through faith, and we're adopted in Christ as sons of the Father. And the Spirit pours out the love of the Father into our hearts, so we'll know that He loves us. So that we'll know that He's given Jesus for us, that Jesus is ours and we're His. And thus we have fellowship with the Father. As John said, Jesus gives us the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, but as he says in John chapter 3, born again of the Holy Spirit. And as children of God, as sons of the Father, we ought to hold fellowship with the Father, with him in love. We, that means we reflect on and rest in and receive his great love for us in the Son. I mean, that becomes a part of your spiritual discipline, not just to open your Bible and read the Bible and just kind of check that task off, not just to pray and sort of check that task off, not just to come here on Sunday morning so that you have attended to your church duty. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. Those are all good things, but not in and of themselves. They're good in as much as you understand that every time you open this book, you are reading of the overflow of the Father's love for you. He, by the Spirit, is speaking to you in His Son. Every time you gather for corporate worship, you're gathering with the body of Christ so that the Father can give Christ to you by the Spirit. You're not just having a transfer of information. The Father's giving himself and his Son and Spirit to you. And you're resting in and reflecting on and receiving his great love for us in the Son. And then we return that love to him with our lives. We return it to him with the way we live. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Please hear this. This world, this life is plagued with suffering and death. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's plagued with sin and rebellion. And you may reach the point where you wonder, for a variety of reasons, does the Father love me? Does God love me? Does the Father really love me as his child? See, what I see around me in my life right now looks nothing like the Father's love for me. That's why it's so important that we are daily, moment by moment, reminding ourselves that the Father loved us before the foundation of the world and sent His Son to redeem us and His Spirit to apply that redemption to us. If He loved you before the world began, there's no way you're thwarting that now. And if He loved us enough to give us His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Oh, Christian, there is no better news that you can hear than that the Father himself loves you even as he loves his own son. He loves you in giving his son for you. He loves you in adopting you as his children in the son. He loves you in sending the spirit to unite you to the son. The father loves you and his love for you in Christ is invincible. That is why Paul can almost break out in song in Romans 8 and say, for I am convinced, I am certain, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the glory of your Father, the glory of our triune Lord. Let us rejoice in his name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would work by your spirit to help us know that your son is the only way to you. That he is the one who reveals you. He is the one who gives us life by the spirit that we might have communion, fellowship with you and with your Son. Father, we pray for those who don't know Jesus, who aren't currently looking to Him in faith. We pray that you would open their eyes to see who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they would believe and by believing would have life in His name. Father, we pray for for those of us here who are Christians, that we would not neglect the great privilege and duty of communing with you as our Father in love, reflecting always and everywhere on the great love that you've shown us before the world began and in creation and most most spectacularly in the giving of your Son and his cross-bearing sin on our behalf. And Father, we pray that we would meditate on that day and night, and we would return that love to you in obedience, knowing that you are good, you're a good Father. May we trust you as your children, in Jesus' name, amen.